Great to have you all, and Merry Christmas once again. And uh, over the next uh, 40 minutes, we're going to look at Lesson 2 in Section 1 of our series. I'll explain how Lesson 2 fits into what we're covering in just a bit. But I want to remind you of some things that are coming up. Uh, This evening at 5.30, all who uh, are able and, and, uh, and want to are invited to go Christmas caroling in the neighborhood where our new location is in uh, Trenton. So in the subdivision that's right just north of South Shore Hospital, uh, we are this evening going to take about an hour or so and just go up and down the block uh, singing Christmas carols and perhaps getting a chance to meet our neighbors. We'll see who opens the door uh, for us. But if not, we'll try to bless them with our, our singing. And those of you whose singing is not blessed... Uh, you can do what somebody was telling me during a break. I forget who it was, but somebody said that they have always been instructed to sing solo. Sing solo, nobody can hear you. And uh, so, so you can show up and do that if you'd like. And showing up means 5.30 at, uh, at James and Sharon Sternberg's house. And they live right on the corner of Van Horn and Valley. And Valley is just west of, of Fort Street. Uh, there's actually a light uh, at the corner of Valley and Van Horn as well, and their house is, is right there. So it's easy to find. It's a 3395 Van Horn, but it's right on that corner. And then uh, behind them is the subdivision that leads to our future building. So tonight at 530, we'll go for about an hour, and then we'll meet back at their house for a hot chocolate. should be a good time and hopefully a way to meet some of our uh, neighbors. And speaking of then, the building... Uh, January 6th, two weeks from today, is our next congregational meeting, and we're going to give as full an update as we can on where we are with that, where we are with uh, the renovations themselves, where we are with the costs, all of that, at that meeting on January 6th. So we encourage, as always, all of our membership to come to the congregational meeting and hear that information. That'll be at 2.30 in the afternoon, two weeks from today, January the 6th, so please uh, mark that. And we also have some other things to do. We've got to uh, seek re-election for a, few, uh, a couple of deacons on our leader, leadership team and uh, some other big items uh, for us to talk about and get the co- solicit the congregation's approval on. So two weeks from today, 2.30, congregational meeting. And then in January, we have to take the entire month of January and scurry as quickly and efficiently as we can to get everything done to move in on Sunday, February 3rd. So we have five now after today, five more Sundays in this building, and then Lord willing, we'll move in on that day. Uh, we will move in on that day. It's just a, a question of in what, uh, in what condition of readiness <laughs> the building will be, and we want it to be as complete as possible, but that means we've got to do some things. So I sent an email to those of you on our email list this past week indicating that we have an email address. It's also in today's program, mc at communitybaptist.to. That's ministry center, mc at communitybaptist.to, asking you to let us know if you're available, what times you're available, and the kinds of things you can can do. These are light things. Uh, There is some lay carpentry, so you do need some skills for that, but the other stuff is just cleaning and some light painting and that kind of stuff. So a number of you have responded to that already, uh, just letting you know those have been received, and uh, we will get back with you just after Christmas, so Wednesday or Thursday, and, uh, and get some more specifics about when you can come and what you can do. But those of you who haven't responded to that, who are willing and able to, to help, then send an email, if you would, 
mc at communitybaptist.to, and we'll go from there. It'll be an exciting, though busy, uh, month for us in uh, the run-up to having our first service there on February 3rd. All right, page six, lesson two in the biblical worldview. And we have now for the prior two weeks in this series seen that a worldview is, as the name suggests, a way of looking at, a way of viewing the world. And when we say the world, we mean everything. So a worldview is your perspective, your vantage point, uh, from which you see everything. And the, that vantage point is going to be determined for all of us by some foundational issues. As we think about purpose, is there purpose? If you, if you don't start with a foundation of there is design and purpose to the world, then you will see events as random and unconnected. And that's a radically different way of looking at something than it is for one who says there is design and purpose ultimately in everything that happens, even if I don't know the particular purpose in this thing. I believe that there is. That's a Christian worldview. That's a biblical worldview. But there are plenty of people who philosophically don't believe there's purpose. And so things are just random in their own lives that they read in the newspaper. They're all disconnected philosophically. And then there are people who, perhaps not philosophically, but practically, believe that things are disconnected. And that's sometimes you and me. Even those of us who claim to have a biblical view of the world very easy in the midst of difficulty to forget that, isn't it? So that practically speaking, it's all disconnected. It doesn't fit. I find myself forgetting that. I preach and teach this stuff. I've been doing it for years now. It's amazing to me how many times I get in the midst of the cauldron of some trial, some difficulty, and I forget, oh yeah, remember that thing you preached just Sunday? (laughs) You know, God's in control of this. God has a purpose in this for you, his glory, your good, all of that, and yet it's very easy to forget. So either philosophically or practically, there are lots of people who don't look at the events of their lives and of the world through the prism of a biblical worldview. So foundational issues will affect how you see everything. And one of those foundational issues is, is there, is there purpose to, to all that happens? And that question is going to be answered by answering a number of, of other questions. I mean, is there is there a God? And is this, uh, is this God active in the affairs of the world? Or is there no God, and it is all time plus chance plus nothing? Or there's, quote, something out there, as many people say, but he's not active and purposeful in the affairs of, of men. Well, a biblical worldview has these components. I told you we'll start at page 6, but I just remind you, if you want to, flip back at page 1 and see a formal definition then of a worldview. Middle of page 1, it's a way of viewing or interpreting all of reality. It's a framework through which one makes sense of the data of life and and the world. And then the presuppositions of a a Christian biblical worldview are on page 2. That indeed there is a God, and not only is there a God, but that people were made to know this God. And so our view of the world is that, th- that God is the creator, we are the creatures, 
and that as creatures made by this God, we were also made to know this God. We were made to know His voice. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, that's why Adam, when he was first created, moment one of his existence, he is able to hear the voice of God, he is able to respond, and he is able to know who God is because he was made to know God. But then the entrance of sin confuses that. So you have a serpent saying, did God really say? Maybe it's not so clear after all, Adam and Eve. Maybe God's not all you thought he was cracked up to be. So he throws confusion into that. They, they follow that foreign voice, and then the consequences are cataclysmic for them and for the human race. And so now people say, I don't really know the voice of God. God still speaks, people still hear, but people don't want to assimilate what God says. That's what Romans 1 tells us, and they say that on page 2 in your notes. That all men know God, you see the three bullets near the top, but men don't want to know God, and as a result, we are rendered foolish. So the components of a biblical worldview really fall into these four categories at the bottom of page 2. The creator-creature distinction, the fact that humanity has now fallen, that God is pursuing redemption of His world, and that He has given us purpose within that world. And then last week, on page 4, we began with, you see at the top, it says orientation. So over the next several weeks, we're going to have three sections with a few lessons each in them. The first one is orientation, then disorientation, then reorientation. And orientation is about the beginning, about creation, about God and His creature, and about God's purpose for making the world and making humanity. And that's what we began with last week, God creating and the fact that God created in a direct way and gave instructions, page 5, to His creation. That if we're going to know any detail about why we're here, it's going to have to come from the one who put us here. And so that's what I mean at the top of page 5, the necessity of revelation. It's necessary for God to reveal. That word means to make known. So it's necessary for God to make it known. And if God doesn't do that, we will grope around in the darkness trying to figure out why we're here. But thankfully, God has accommodated His creation by speaking, by telling us why we're here. That's part of the orientation. And now today on page 6, we continue with that orientation and the fact that God has spoken to us and told us about Himself, ourselves, His world, our purpose within it. And I call this lesson two, footnotes of creation. It's been said of the famous philosopher Plato, after Plato, all philosophy is footnotes. In a real sense, after creation, all of life is footnotes. (laughs) So here's what I mean by that. If you get creation down, there's a lot of stuff that then just falls into place. Conversely, if you mess creation up, then you are going to miss a lot of things truths that are based upon the truth of creation. And so that's why last week we spent some time looking at what God tells us about His creative activity and the fact that He created the world in a short span, six days, and He created the world and everything in it. Now let's suppose you get that wrong, just as a for instance. Let's suppose you buy the so-called scientific uh, notion that the evidence is overwhelming Uh, that the world, uh, the universe is billions of years old. 
You want to account for that somehow because you don't want to be embarrassed in science class. And so you come to believe in something called the day-age theory. And some of you may know what that is. But those days in Genesis chapter 1 are not real 24-hour days, according to this theory. But rather, they're called days, but they are really these long ages. Now, remember last week we saw from Genesis chapter 20, where God says, Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, for in six days the Lord your God created everything. And I pointed out the absurdity of seeing the Sabbath day as an age, as much as I would like to rest for the rest of the age. The Sabbath day is actually a day. And so that's all I get. That's all God gave me. The other six are supposed to work. Okay? But there are people who hold this whole day-age theory. So it not only doesn't hold as it relates to the Sabbath, Exodus 20, but it doesn't hold as it relates to some very, very important theological truths of Christianity. I mean, where did death come from? The wages of sin is death. Now, death came into the world as a result of the first man and the first woman sinning. Outside of sinning, there is no death. But if you believe in the day-age theory, if you believe in millions of years for earth and billions for the universe, you have got, you've got death going on for, for tens of thousands of years prior to man sinning. So instead of sin causing death, you've got death already there. So this creates a huge theological problem as you now read forward in the Bible story. It's the wages of sin that causes death. Death is not a natural part of God's creation. It is an unnatural intruder into God's created order. And so we, from a biblical standpoint, view it that way. We hate death. And we hate all that sin has brought about. More importantly, God hates it. And that's why God's restoration is going to be the elimination of all of the stuff that was caused by sin. So we have a phrase in one of our, in one of our um, uh, Christmas carols. I'm trying to remember which one. Is it Joy to the World? That says, far as the curse is found. That's Joy to the World, isn't it? But that phrase, as far as the curse is found, Christ is redeeming his world. And so what, where is the curse found? Well, it's found in the sickness, and it's found in the death. And the Bible tells us that God is, going to redeem, is redeeming his world, and he's going to eliminate all of that. Why? Because it's an intruder to his original design. It's not part of the nature of his creation. So if you get it wrong at the beginning, it's going to have effects down the road in terms of your understanding of the Christian story. And so I say at the top of page 6, after creation, all of life is footnotes. You get creation right, that's the foundation. Everything else is built off of that and then the other categories of things that I laid out in a Christian worldview, the fall, redemption, and purpose. And so second line, top of page 6, the implications of the fact that the universe was made by God explain life. In Lesson 1, we began to look at some of those implications. Creation necessitates revelation as an example. If we're to know about God and His world, He has to tell us about Himself and His purposes. In addition, 
We mu- he must have created us with the capacity to recognize and receive what he tells us. Now we're going to continue to flesh out the implications of creation. So, God makes the world from a biblical worldview standpoint. And God makes his crowning achievement in creation, humanity, with the ability to communicate both to one another, to God, and to receive from God instruction, to receive from him revelation. Adam and Eve were made that way. We were made with that capacity. That's why your baby, if you have children has this amazing capacity. And you look at that child and you go, where did they pick that up? Now, if it's something bad, I know where they picked it up. It's from my wife. And you all remember us saying that Annie, our little one when she was, maybe what, four, something, three, and she just made up her own swear word. Um, And so she would get mad and she would just say, pump. And I look at Kim. Well, look, have you been yelling pump around the house? <laughs> and she swears to this day, no. And so that's what the judgment seat is for. We all get to see a big screen. And we're all going to see it right there in living color. And I'm going to say, see? But the truth is, she was just able to come up with this on her own. Her own little Annie swear word. And they have this amazing capacity to put these things together and to to communicate. Why? Because they were made that way. Because humanity was made to communicate, but also to receive God's communication from Him. And God has memorialized, God has inscripturated His communication to us. And that's why we carry around a book. That's why we have the Bible. That's why we speak of Scripture script. Greek words graphe, you know, graffiti. It's written. And that's why Jesus said over and over again when he walked the earth, you remember, he would say, it is what? It's written. And it would be that that he would appeal to, to refute those who would teach something, something false about him and about, and about God's purpose. And so, Let's continue then to flesh out these implications of the fact that God has created, made us with the capacity to receive His revelation, and that He has actually spoken and He has inscripturated, written down that communication. The nature of Scripture, page 6. As God's communication to man, the Scripture is His means of conveying to us information about Himself and His world. There's a number of implications of the fact that Scripture is God's Word that's designed to tell us His purpose, His will. So first, let's be reminded that the Bible is indeed God's Word. It makes that claim about itself, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed. Now, a number of translations, King James says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Greek word that's translated inspiration is literally what the NIV has here. It's God-breathed. It's a compound of two Greek words, thea, noustos. Theos, God, noustos, spirit, breath, or wind. So we get pneumonia from noustos. That's That's a respiratory breathing problem, right? And so noustos means spirit, breath, or or wind, pneumatic breaks. Our air brakes, right? So, so noustos, spirit, wind, breath, 
Theos, God. Theonoustos, God breathed. So the emphasis of 2 Timothy 3.16 is Scripture came from God. It was breathed out by God. Now the potential problem with the translation, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is that you could get the idea that what's being emphasized is to whom it came, that it was inspired, inbreathed into these people. But it's actually emphasizing the opposite. It's emphasizing not to whom it came, but from whom it came. It came from God. It is breathed out by God. So you, you know, if you want to follow the King James, you could say all Scripture is given by expiration of God. That God expires, breathes out Scripture, because God is the source of Scripture. That's what's being emphasized in 2 Timothy 3.16. And because God is its source then there are a number of implications for our belief about Scripture. One of those is listed on page 6, that Scripture is inerrant. We say inerrancy is a corollary of inspiration. So we use that word inspiration because the King James has used it for centuries, but by inspiration we really mean it came from God, expiration. God breathed it out. God's the source. And if that's really true, and a biblical worldview says it is, that Scripture came from God, then it follows, must follow, that Scripture is inerrant, that is, without error. If Scripture came from God, it cannot be anything other than without error. If God can lie, then all bets are off, right? How can you you possibly know If anything is absolutely true, if God has the capacity to lie. And so the Scripture emphasizes Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19. Numbers 23 verse 19, straight up, God cannot lie. Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, we saw it in the first hour. God does not lie. So sometimes we say, you know, this God is omniscient, he knows everything, he's sovereign, he controls everything, and he is omnipotent, he is all-powerful, he can do anything. But that's technically not the case, because there are some things God cannot do. If you want to define God being all-powerful, this is the way you should define it, not God can do anything. It's God can do anything that's consistent with his character. So God cannot lie. Why can God not lie? Because it's inconsistent with who he is. He cannot violate his own character. So if Scripture has been breathed out by God, if it's God is the source of the Bible, then it follows that Scripture is without error because God can, cannot lie. It also follows that Scripture is secondly infallible. And that refers to the authority of Scripture. So what's the difference between the Bible being inerrant and the Bible being infallible? We know you can have a record of something that has no errors in it, but nobody has any requirement to pay any attention to it. So this is saying that God not only has an error-free communication, but because it has come from God, it has full authority. It's not only without error, every person is subject to pay attention to it and submit themselves to it. So that's what's meant by it's infallible. 
So John 10, 35. Jesus says, quote, The Scripture cannot be broken. The Scripture cannot be violated. The Scripture must be obeyed and submitted to. Why? Because it comes from God. Therefore, it is infallible. It has complete authority. Okay, the Bible has been breathed out by God. God is the Bible's source. Therefore, it's without error because God cannot lie. And therefore, it has full authority in everything that it affirms. And let me just stop there. In everything that it affirms. Right? Because not everything in the Bible is true. I mean, when when the Bible quotes Satan saying, you shall not surely die, It's true that Satan said that, (laughs) but the statement Satan made is false. So that's why we say the Bible has full authority in everything that it affirms. The Bible does not affirm that you shall not surely die. It actually affirms you will. When I was with our Chinese brothers and sisters a couple of weeks ago, my task was to spend five days teaching them how to interpret the Bible. And so I was going through these principles of interpretation for them that they had never heard in their lives. And uh, so I was very glad to be able to be there to to help. But they would simply read the Bible, and for them, all of the Bible is, is equal. Now, all of the Bible is equally from God, and it is equally an accurate record, an inerrant record from God. But the Bible contains false statements in it that are designed to be rejected. Uh, and, and not affirmed in Scripture. And the Bible contains different kinds of literature that are to be interpreted differently. So, Proverbs 22.6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's a proverb. It's not a legal guarantee. And Proverbs were never designed to be laws. That's why they're called Proverbs rather than laws. It is, Proverbs always are, general truths. And so there will be exceptions. That doesn't mean the Bible's in error because the Bible was, didn't affirm, it never affirmed that this was to be a binding law. Okay? So, Scripture has full authority in everything that it affirms. And then thirdly, Scripture is clear. Again, these are corollaries from the fact that this comes from God that God has made humanity with the ability to receive His revelation, and therefore, God is going to have to speak in a way that humanity can understand. And that's why we say the Scriptures are clear. Theologians use this fancy term, perspicuity, to describe that. The Scriptures are perspicuous, and just means that they, they are clear. Now, it doesn't mean that every piece of the Bible is equally clear. It means that in God's central story, the unfolding of his central message to man, that God is, is clear. There are, there are issues of interpretation about which we scratch our heads sometimes. But they don't relate to the central message of the Bible. You know, the story that I was going through this morning in the first hour, and God creates, and going back to eternity past, God, God is pursuing his own glory and God creates in order to execute a plan to pursue His own glory. And all of the unfolding story of the Bible is this narrative that God has made clear. That He's the Creator, we have fallen, and He provides the solution to that fallenness. 
And that is unmistakable as you read through Scripture. And so that's what we mean when we say Scripture is clear. And then fourthly, Scripture has unity. Even though the Bible was written by 40 different authors over a 1,600-year period, I mean, you can't get five people in a room today, let alone separated by 1,600 years, to agree on anything let alone getting 40 different authors that lived at different times, different backgrounds, to write a unified book. That in itself is miraculous. But the reason that that can happen is because even though you have these 40 different authors of the 66 books of the Bible, ultimately there is one author to the Bible. Ultimately, behind Scripture is God superintending what the human authors wrote. And God's providential superintendence of them, their backgrounds, what they wrote, the materials they used, all of that guaranteed that what they wrote is what God wanted written. And so since God is the ultimate author, one ultimate author, the Bible does not contradict itself. So never find yourselves, friends, simply proof-texting the Bible. You're arguing with somebody and... Somebody points out to you, you know, God is in absolute control of every detail of, of life and shows you several passages that teach that truth, and there are a zillion. And then you say, well, wait a minute, what, is that, what does that make me? Does that make me a non-player? Does that make me a robot? Don't get in the habit then of saying, well, here's my verse, you've got your verse, and never the twain shall meet. So, somebody might say, whosoever will may come, as a way of showing that God is not sovereign in the issue of salvation, not in control in the issue of salvation, that that God's waiting for us to decide what we're going to do. You know, so we've got even bumper stickers. You know, God, God, God cast a vote for you, the devil cast a vote against you, what's the rest of it? You cast the deciding vote. There's my non-sovereign God standing on the sidelines, sweating it, hoping that you're going to pull the right lever. Pull the God lever. And the Bible presents no such God. This God is absolutely in control of everything that happens in His world. And then you and I have the responsibility of reconciling anything that's difficult for us to grasp with the, re- the remaining truths of Scripture. And as we do that, we do so knowing that the Bible cannot contradict itself because ultimately it has one author. So the Bible is God's Word. And Scripture, secondly, is God's will. So the Bible has come to us from God. As a result, it has these qualities of inerrancy and infallibility and clarity and unity. And He has given us the Bible, in order to tell us His purpose, what He wants, what He desires, His plan. That's what we mean when we say Scripture is God's will. So the rest of that passage in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. Here's why. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so God has given us Scripture for us to know what He wants for us to do, His will. 
Now, I'd like to spend just a few minutes talking about God's will. We say here, Scripture is God's will. But sometimes you will hear people say um, that, you know, something, something tragic, something, something sinful is God's will. Because everything that happens is God's will. And I, w- I just want to caution you about that. That when God gives us in Scripture His will, His desires, His plan, He's expressing the way things should be. And He prohibits the way things ought not to be. So if a murder occurs, that is always contrary to God's will. The taking murder, the taking of a human, innocent human life, it is always contrary to God's will. Well, then how can we say that God's in control and everything that happens is His will? Here's how. You have to, if you're going to read Scripture and you're going to put it together, you have to understand that the Bible speaks of two aspects of God's will. It speaks of His sovereign will that somehow everything that happens is incorporated into the ultimate plan of God. And so we saw in the first hour, a pagan emperor, Caesar Augustus, a pagan Moabite woman marrying an Israelite, and God uses all of this in his sovereign control of his world and everything that happens in it. Now, the Bible absolutely teaches that about God. That God is, well, instead of me just claiming it, let me show that to you, okay? Look at Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46. Verse 8, Isaiah 46 and verse 8, remember this, fix it in mind, take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. Now, let me just stop there. You read that phrase, and it can sound just like a flourish of rhetoric. I make known the end from the beginning. No, look at it. I make known the end at the very beginning. I make known what's going to happen in the end before it ever happens. That's what he's saying. I make known the end. I reveal the end at the beginning. That's why you've got a book called Revelation. God knows how it ends. The reason he knows how it ends is because he's in control of everything that happens in between. I make known the end from the beginning, at the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. Now let me stop there. God sweats the small stuff. My plan includes where a bird flies. And I summon a bird for my purpose. And a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. That is God's sovereign will. 
Take a look at Matthew 10 in your New Testament. Matthew 10 and verse 30. This is a passage many of us know. Where Jesus says, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So this is a statement of God's knowledge of everything, even the number of hairs on your head. Depending on the condition of your head, that may not be such a great feat. You, can, you may be able to count them yourself. But God says, even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So we think of that as God is really smart. God can process a lot of data. I mean, like six billion people in the world, and he knows the number of hairs on the head of every person at all times. He's omniscient, all-knowing, and that's true. But that is not what Jesus is emphasizing here. He's not just emphasizing God knows everything because the verse right before it says this, verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And the very hairs of your head are numbered. See, it's not just God knows all of this. All of this fits into God's sovereign plan. A worthless bird. My apologies to all the tree huggers and environmentalists. But, but I mean, it's Jesus saying this, right? I mean, two sparrows are pretty well, sparrows are worthless, Okay and they die. They fall to the ground. And even despite the fact that they are relatively worthless, not one of them falls to the ground outside the will of your Father. The very hairs of your head are numbered. Ain't nothing happens in your life outside the control of this sovereign God. So the Bible teaches that, right? And yet... Scripture tells us not only that God is in control of everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but that God has affirmed what he desires, what he wants to happen. And that's the other aspect of God's will. There is his sovereign will. He's in control of everything. And then there is, this is what I call it, his moral will or his revealed will. And you see that in Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29. Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. All right, so let me stop there. The secret things. The stuff God hasn't told me. Like, what's going to happen to me this afternoon? I don't know. God knows, and God actually has a sovereign plan. He knows, but they belong to Him. So there are plenty of things about my life, your life, God's world, that God knows every aspect of that I don't, that you don't. But the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us. So there are things that God has made known to us. And they belong to us and our children's children forever. That we may follow all the words of this law. That's God's moral will. His made known, revealed will. 
And God has made known that murder, the taking of innocent human life, is always wrong. Now, in his sovereignty, he somehow fits that into his plan. But we don't simply say, well, maybe it wasn't so bad that somebody violated God's moral will because he somehow, because he is going to overrule it in his sovereignty. And so as we look at Scripture as God's will, it teaches his sovereign will, it teaches his moral or his revealed will as best. And please do not mix those up. I'll give you one other example. We'll be three minutes over time, but we'll quit. Second Peter 3. Second Peter 3. Now, we looked at this last week as it related to uniformitarianism. If you weren't here last week, then you didn't have to endure hearing what that was about. If you care to, you can listen online. But we saw from 2 Peter 3 that Peter is writing about folks who will say he is not coming back. Christ is not returning because all things go on today as they have from the beginning. So why should we think he's coming back? Peter says, here's why. Because in the past, God has intervened in the affairs of human history in, very, in, in huge and judgmental ways, like a flood. And he will do that again in the future, this time not by water but by fire. That's what Peter says, 2 Peter 3. But then he says, he says this, verse 8, But do not forget this one thing. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years are like a day. And the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He is not slow in keeping the fact that he is going to judge the world. That's still going to happen. And God is not off his time schedule. That's what Peter's saying. He's not slow in keeping his promise. He is right on target, exactly on his calendar where he has determined to be. He is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Rather, he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's a statement of God's moral will. God desires. It's an expression of God's heart. God wants everyone to come to repentance. That's his moral will. Let me ask you this. Is that God's sovereign will? Now think about it for a second. And we know it's time to end class when the machines go off. And they just went off. They've scheduled them to go. You guys asked the janitors to have those things going the whole time I'm talking. And then to go off as a signal for him to shut up. But I've got you because we're not going to have any of those vending machines at the new building, okay? So 2 Peter 3.9 is indeed an expression of God's moral will, what God wants, what God desires, an expression of his heart. Is that an expression of God's sovereign will? And the answer is it cannot be. Because if that were an expression of God's sovereign, absolute control of everything that happens in his world, then guess what would happen? Everyone would come to repentance. If one person does not come to repentance then this cannot be an expression of God's sovereign will. It's an expression of His moral will. It's telling us what our God is like and the heart that He has to see people come to repentance. But make no mistake, God will hold accountable and will fulfill His promise of judgment to those who refuse His gracious offer of deliverance in Christ. 
So Scripture is God's will. But Scripture tells us that this God is sovereign and the secret things belong to the Lord. And if you want to know God's sovereign will for today, you have to ask me tomorrow. And whatever happened today fits in somehow into his sovereign will. But it doesn't fit in necessarily to his moral will. His moral will is an expression of God's heart and what he has revealed as what should happen versus what often does happen. All right. We will pray. We will continue next week. All right. We thank you, Lord, for giving us your word so that we have a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Otherwise, we grope in darkness, not knowing who we are, not knowing what your world is placed here for, not knowing who you are. Thank you for granting us the light of Scripture. And I thank you for granting us the Holy Spirit to give us the desire to see that light and to know that light and to walk in that light. I pray that's true of every one of us here. Lord, we want to know it better. and We want to do it better. Help us this week as we celebrate your execution of your plan for your world in the coming of the chosen one, the Messiah, God the Son. And help us, Lord, to enjoy the gifts and help us to enjoy family and all the cooking and all the festivities. Help us most of all to remember God is in that manger and that this is the carrying out of your eternal plan for your glory and our good. Help us this week, Lord, to be able to look at life increasingly clearly through a biblical lens, a view of the world that comes to us from you. We ask you to grant us safety and that we can gather back again, again next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Merry Christmas to all.